For me, there's a couple of things I might be able to share. I think you have to keep things simple as best as you can. But entrepreneurship is not simple. It is multifaceted. And you're going to be doing things, as I mentioned, that are not within your skill set. But uh, keep them as really as, as simple as you can. Well, I'm excited to welcome in Paolo Tiramani from Boxable. How are we doing, brother? Fantastic, Matthew. Love the show. Looks like you got all kinds of uh, activity going on behind you. I know you guys are making a wave in uh, the affordable housing space and the construction space, which we're going to talk about here with uh, with Boxable. But you know, for those that don't know who you are and you know what your uh, your journey has looked like, I know we'll share a little bit more about it. But when people do ask, "Who are you and what are you doing, Paulo?" What do you tell them? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm a, um, a really a life lifelong entrepreneur. In fact, we were talking the other day that. This is actually my first employed uh, job. Is it? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't set out to do that, but it's actually the first time I've been employed by anybody. I mean, it is obviously a majority shareholder and all that, but uh, so it's very interesting. So yeah, I am a lifelong uh, entrepreneur, um, industrial designer, and mechanical engineer by training. Industrial designer is just basically commercial product art. You know, it's physical, mechanical things, inventions and things of that nature. And uh, after graduating, we um, tried a couple of different things in the field and eventually settled on uh, uh, an IP licensing company, intellectual property licensing uh, company. So we actually started off as operators making sort of novelty barware and things like that, a few other bits and pieces of trade shows, and sort of grew that to $3 million um, US dollars, which was a really big deal back then as a very young guy. and. Uh, uh, we would get asked all the time by others to uh, develop product for them. We said, you know what, there might might be actually be a more broad scope and profitable venture. So we set up a company to invent things for others. Uh, very simple business models, basically uh, intellectual property, patents, uh, generally mechanical patents and designs. And we licensed those to industry for a royalty. And we did that for several decades. It was quite successful. And uh, exposed me to a little bit of everything, exposed me to a lot of business disciplines, which uh, certainly legal disciplines with the law, especially patent law, uh, defense, uh, taught me how to be uh, a litigator of sorts, you know, (laughs) a litigator from the, uh, from the, uh, I mean, means to to fight, basically, legal fight. And uh, yes, so we, we did that for a number of years, had some pretty good successes, taught us a lot about first principles. And uh, about five or six years ago, I would say, um, I decided we, I'd like to, us to be operators in a space rather than licensors, where you license to others. And so we said, well, you know, if we're inventors, you know, what are we going to invent? And uh, she would invent something that's a little problem or a big problem, a small market or a big market. And at that point, it's just intellectual and abstract. So we said, let's go for it. Let's find the biggest problem we can and see if we have the capacity to fix that. And so we sort of set off uh, to do that, to find the biggest problem we could find and see if we could fix it. Uh, so and the sort of really super fast forward brings us from, you know, how I, you know, life before Boxable uh, for me to sort of uh, starting to work on, on the Boxable product. 
Well, I'm excited to uh, to dig in because obviously Boxable is, you know, taking uh, many different spaces by storm and specifically attacking what one seems second. to be one of the largest issues that we've got in the U.S. right now, which is uh, affordable housing units, right? And so I'm excited to see kind of how you guys landed on that particular space, that problem, and then going from idea to kind of inception to now what is a full-fledged, you know, uh, business that is, you know, taking over the space and really pioneering a new space. Um, what was your philosophy, you know, as an early stage entrepreneur and business owner around creating some real success and stability for yourself at that very first kind of venture going from zero to 3 million most, I think 95% of businesses never cross that even million dollar milestone, let alone, you know, <laughs> a couple, uh, seven figures. So what was kind of this early, you know, entrepreneurial journey for you as it unfolded, you know, how did you kind of reach some of that success early on? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like building a bigger pipeline with real customers customers, leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this Deep Sales, and LinkedIn has built the first Deep Sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. Yeah. So, I mean, so back then, that's sort of several generations ago, actually, <laughs> you know, after college, uh, just really started there. I started one company, actually, uh, that uh, I, so, so from, from, from college, uh, I could have got a job as an industrial designer, had a couple of offers, whatever. And I took a job uh, just as a model maker. Uh, in a shop because it made more money, which normally is a very, very dumb thing to do when you're at a college with a low overhead is to work for money. You should be working for knowledge, right? But I had a plan to to raise a little bit of capital, start a company. So I did that for about 18 months, two years, all, all very modest and uh, came up with a product that was uh, just a tie organizer. I mean, it's really pretty cute. And I sold a few of those and realized I didn't know anything about business. So that sort of basically went pear-shaped. So that was my first failure. And I thought, okay, well, that wasn't so good, was it? And, uh, you know, in hindsight, maybe it was good to get that out of the way and then started another business with a partner, which was this barware, plastic barware. And he had more of a business mindset. And uh, so we came up with this uh, this this ball, this tubular uh, plastic uh, was glass originally with a, with a straw around the outside. It was just barware. And it was just doing something that nobody else had done you know, definitely never the me too guy. If we can't add value uh, in a space, we're not going to attempt that. And uh, just put that out there. And the next thing you know, we had a little warehouse. And as I said, we're selling uh, 3 million a year. And 
um, just selling them all over the place. And then it's sort of, you know, you need everything. You need a little bit of luck as well. And we've sure. and the product found itself on Star Trek uh, as a sort of future track product, the some aliens drinking from it. And uh, yeah, the next thing we know, we realized the sales in the US uh, was bigger than sales in the UK, as you probably hear. I grew up there, even though I'm a flag-waving American now, let me tell you. But uh, <laughs> And we so we, we moved, you know, and just moved to, to New York City a long time ago. Uh, and that was uh, sort of the genesis for just the, the beginning of, of, of my career um, as an industrial designer as, and, and an entrepreneur. And as I said, that was, that was, uh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> as, an, as an early stage entrepreneur, being that we've got a lot of people that are you know, thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, they are an entrepreneur, they're kind of pushing through those kind of first you know, challenging milestones and hurdles a lot of entrepreneurs face and experience. You know, looking back at that point in your journey, Knowing what you know now, what were some of the things that, you know, you would love to relay to those early stage business owners that could really help them either break through a challenge or overcome, you know, a hurdle mentally or physically? Right. I think just a, just a couple of things, just not to overwhelm. I think the first thing is you have to look at yourself and say, do I really want to do this? Mm. Do I really, really want to do this? And if you don't have a complete compulsion, maybe you shouldn't do it. You know, if you like the idea of being your own boss, you know, swanning around and coming and going as you please, eh, not really for you. Um, if you understand that you're going to be working huge hours, facing a lot of adversity, uh, it's going to be pretty much tough, pretty much a nightmare, especially your first or second go round. If you understand that you're really, truly going to have to be a generalist and understand a little bit about everything all of the time, that you're going to be completely overwhelmed, that you are going to have to park your friends, possibly your health, uh, possibly your family and your children to work all the time. If you're not willing to do that, don't do it. Just mm-hmm. don't do it. Just go get a job. You'll be happy. Uh, and then the other, the other, the other significant uh, piece of information. So I know it's a little, maybe not the most the jolly thing to say, but it's true. And you don't want to spend time. Uh, you don't want to spend uh, four or five, seven years of your life, spend all your savings and realize, oh yeah. That wasn't for me, yeah. <laughs> right? So, and then the other thing is, is uh, you better be stubborn. You better mm. be really, really stubborn. And if you're going to give up, uh, don't do it. Uh, if you if you look back at your own uh, personal history for your viewers, look back at the personal history. Are they tenacious or do they give up? Um, most people are successful in large part not because they're brilliant, not because uh, they have some amazing. A gift or the smartest human being on the planet. It's a lot, a lot of it is tenacity and not giving up. So you'd be better. You, you better be prepared to really never, ever, ever uh, give up and keep pushing. And that goes from business to business. If the first one doesn't work out, just to keep, just to keep pushing. Yeah. Uh, for me, I have to say it's definitely a compulsion. You know, so there's some some of the things that make you, some of your weaknesses can make you strong, right? So I mean, you can say definitely. Uh, that not giving up is a liability and not giving up is an asset. And you just have to just stay on the right side of the line when you, when you, when you think about these things. For me, um, maybe I didn't like authority so much. Maybe I thought I knew better. Now I know, now I know that I don't know everything. <laughs> maybe back then I thought I knew maybe more than I did. Uh, maybe I didn't like authority. Maybe I wanted to do something different. Maybe I got bored easily. And uh, some of those negative things, uh, some of those compulsions, uh, perhaps I turned into a positive. But uh, there's no one shoe that fits all. 
you got to look at yourself deep, 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 say, am I really going to do this? How did you, uh, during those times of challenge, right? You talked about that grit, that tenacity. I always tell people I was just dumb enough to believe in myself and smart enough to show up and take action every day. <laughs> and, you know, oftentimes the, the hardest is when you don't have that motivation or you lack that clarity or you feel the stress and the anxiety and the pressure and the overwhelm that oftentimes comes with being your own boss and going down the, the path less traveled. How did you mentally and physically keep your mind and your body optimized to push through some of the, which I know you've had along the way, challenging yeah, times. Sure. Yeah. So for me, there's a, there's a couple of things I might be able to share. I think you have to keep things simple as best as you can. But entrepreneurship is not simple. It is multifaceted. You're going to be doing things, as I mentioned, that are not within your skill set, but to keep them you know, as, as, as really as, as simple as you can. You know, secondly, you have to find an outlet. For me, it's the gym. Uh, you know, go to the gym. I don't, I don't uh, train with a trainer or anything like that because it's just my space, my time, yep. uh, you know, to do that. Um, but yeah, you're going to have uh, challenges. And, um, and then sort of the overriding thing, I would say, uh, is when things are good and bad. Uh, and a, a, a good friend of me, a good, good friend of mine, told me this years ago. Perhaps when uh, you know we're going through a rough patch, and he said, "Paolo, he goes, things don't things don't stay bad." And he said, and conversely, things don't stay good. So it actually works both ways. And yeah. I'll explain it very quickly. When you know things are not going to stay bad, it it, it gives you a tow line. It gives you light at the end of the tunnel. And what's what's the saying? You're, you hope it's not. You hope it's the end of the tunnel, and not a train coming the other way. But <laughs> yeah, uh, right. you know, it, but it gives you a tow line just to say, just keep, just push, you push, put your head against the wall, just keep pushing uh, until you get to. Things are not going to stay bad. And conversely, which I find really, um, really, really useful, is things don't stay good. You're going to have challenges. So for me, when things are good, right now things are really good. Uh, so I wake up every day and I'm grateful. I wake up every day and I'm grateful, and I know that. We're going to have challenge, challenges. So just maturity of experience means that uh, we're going to lay those foundations both personally and within the business. This business behind us is a monstrous, monstrous business now and uh, allows us to make those plans that let's not, let's not get caught up in our own hubris. Things are not going to stay good. There are going to be challenges. Um, yeah, we don't see any on the horizon right now, but for sure they are there. So you kind of talked about this and I think... I always love, you know, getting into the the psyche of of world changers, right? Like what you guys are doing is going to change the world. That's just flat out facts. Like you're you're attacking a space that is such a dire need for so many human beings on planet Earth. You could have stayed. I mean, for a lot of people, they would go three million bucks a year. Man, that sounds pretty damn good to me, Paolo. Like what the hell? You're crazy for you know leaving that and going and chasing something bigger, something more impactful. Like what did that process look like for you? And, and how did you come to that conclusion of going, it's time to pack up shop here, boys, because we got something bigger to go after. Right, absolutely. So I've just put it in context, uh, $3 million a year was 1981. Uh, so things have grown a, a bit since then. Uh, and, the, and the company, the licensing company that we did in that, that I did in between for decades, intellectual property license, so was pretty successful. Um, and the company you see behind me today is worth $3.4 billion. Uh, and, you know, we're a startup. 
Uh, so, you know, it's been a very sort of interesting, interesting uh, ride for me personally to get there and uh, having to do things uh, with Boxable now that uh, is expanding my uh, my skill sets uh, on, a, on a on a really a weekly and a monthly basis. So it's been a, a very interesting uh, a journey <laughs> with some you know some potholes along the way, pretty major potholes along the way. Sure. By the way, what are some of those that you know stand out for you that you you've had to work through? I mean, so many people say you want to go out and be a billionaire, you know, either bring a billion dollars worth of value to the marketplace or solve a billion dollar problem, right? So I'm sure you've ran into some big potholes on the business side, on the leadership side. What are some of the ones that have, you know, stuck out for you along the way? And how have you attacked and kind of gotten through those? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you know, so, so certainly with the intellectual property licensing company prior to Boxable, it was always David and Goliath, even though uh, the company had... Uh, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions in revenue, uh, gross, gross, gross revenue, license revenue sales. Uh, it uh, we were still a, 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 it was still always a David and Goliath uh, situation. So you're going to have large firms that are always going to attempt uh, to to your licensee is eventually going to attempt to knock you off, and you better be a tough guy and know a little bit about the law and have an army of attorneys. And uh, you know, when they when they are doing their job and being reasonable and responsible, the attorneys, I mean, are saying, Paolo, why don't you settle for this? Uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're thinking about the bigger picture. And as a risk taker, you say, well, no, let's just push forward a little bit because we're right, they're wrong. Uh, let's see, let's see how that uh, turns out. And I would say just fast forwarding to Boxable, uh, uh, huge challenges uh, and continuing challenges. You know, Boxable basically, if, if I may describe it uh, just very quickly, Please, yes. it's a, yeah, it's a building, a building technology company that makes most things most of the time. And uh, what does that mean? It means uh, apartment buildings, houses, single family, uh, temporary structures, uh, mansions. Uh, it's really quite. A remarkable product, and <clears throat> when we looked at the building construction industry, we said, uh, "Huh, you know, this is a big marketplace to go into. Maybe we can do some good here." And uh, why is it pre-industrial? By pre-industrial yeah. is why are buildings not built in a factory? And uh, the, the the answer is sort of staring you in the face, which is they're really big and people can't. It, they can they can build them in the factory, but they can't ship them from the factory. Uh, so if you start off with something like that, say that well, nobody's been able to do that. Uh, people are still field building out in the field. They have you know high high lead times, high costs, variable quality, uh, no real guarantees on the product. You know the, the workers and laborers just disappeared before corners of the earth after the product is built, and that's out in the field. And in the factory, of course, there are factory solutions, typically, you know, modular homes, trailer homes. You know, we're, we're uh, built on modular standard, which is actually higher than modular standards. So just, just sticking with those for a moment, you know, if you look at the modular guys that are building product uh, homes in a factory, they bring field tools. And I mean, out in the field tools with uh, air guns and sticks of wood and things that people can carry around. And they bring them into a factory so they have antiquated materials and tools. Um, that is not appropriate for a factory environment. That's the first thing. So they still have little bits of wood and stick them together with nail guns. And then they build something that's 14 foot wide that's illegal to ship. <laughs> it's not legal to ship 14 foot wide. So if you, if you put all those things together, you've got some very significant problems to overcome if I just list the problems. And then if I look, so 
So, you know, how do you put that in a factory? And then the other side of it is the, is the regulatory. Um, I would say three things, the three legs to that problem stool. Uh, the, the second is uh, the regulatory issues. Uh, we live uh, in building construction globally is a sort of fragmented code. Uh, situation, you know, if you had a, if you bought a, an automobile in Arizona and you wanted to drive it to Nevada, and they said, "Well, hang on a second, you're not that car is not certified to drive into Nevada," you'd have a bit of a problem. But so we have sort of uh, national, global certifications for automobiles, and right. we don't have that. Uh, so, and that is myriad and sort of Byzantium. It's completely insane. And then the, the, the third thing is, of course, how do you finance? Uh, a company like this to get it off the ground uh, when it's so abstract to most people. That was going to be my next design. question. So those would be three challenges. And within those three sets of challenges, you've got staggering level of subsets, you know. So, yeah, uh, yeah a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, problems. right. On, ongoing. How long is the list? So wh- when did you guys... How did, how did this kind of idea come come to be? I mean, you obviously were looking at a myriad of, of issues in, in the world that inspired you that you wanted to help solve? Like, why Boxable? And how did this turn into a, a real company? What did that yeah, process so, look like? Right. So um, so uh, to, towards the end of uh, the intellectual property licensing company, we said, uh, let's become operators in a space. Let's not be just be licensors on the intellectual side. Let's, uh, let's become operators in a space. So we set about monetizing the company by selling the licenses back typically to our licensees. Um, that uh, did uh, financing. It just basically monetized uh, uh, the business. And then we said, okay, well, you know, if we're, uh, uh, if we're inventors, for want of a better word, uh, shouldn't we be able, and that's what we do, and that's our skill, shouldn't we be able to invent anything? And we likened it to, you know, an accountant. So an accountant is in the business accounting. He doesn't really care what he counts or she. They're just really, really good at counting. Mm-hmm. Um, so with invention, we said, okay, uh, Let's just go and find a problem. Don't just pursue an idea we're passionate about. Let's go find a problem, right? So let's go find a problem. We said the problem's got to be big and we've got to do some good. You know, we are not a charitable organization. We are for-profit. At some point, we have to monetize the business through an IPO to reward our staff and our, our investors and frankly, and frankly ourselves. But it is still a, a good works company. So, yep. And certainly when we were not going to do Me Too because we're not wired. I'm not wired in my DNA to do Me Too. I couldn't have had a successful invention business <laughs> if it was somebody else's invention, right? So we looked at a couple of things. We looked at, you know, automotive and this and that. Thank God we didn't go into that, you know, with Mr. Musk dominating the space. And uh, building construction, you know, just stood out. It just stood out like such a huge, overwhelming problem. So that's how we arrived at uh, at, uh, at uh, building construction, at being as a problem, and set out to see, okay, well, there are hundreds of problems of building construction. Can we just pull out a bite-sized quantity of maybe a couple of three uh, uh, problems? And uh, the biggest one, of course, is shipping. So, you know, when you invent for a living, people see sort of an aha invention an aha moment, what they often don't realize is that there's a whole subset of other inventions beneath it. But the big one was, you know, how do, how are we going to ship big things down the highway? Uh, because nobody else has done it. So uh, our research showed that most building construction is about, I'm just going to round numbers off just for the sake sure, of conversation. Yeah. It's about two-thirds empty space. It's about two-thirds empty space. Uh, and it's inexpensive space because it's empty. And about a third of it, or less, 
is what we call dollar dense. It's dollar dense in terms of labor and fit out. So fit out of appliances, stairs, uh, uh, kitchens, bathrooms, toilets, closets, boiler rooms, and the associated labor to put uh, those units in. So we said, oh, okay, so we've got dollar dense and we've got two thirds of it. So we said, well, how about we just uh, fold it up then? Why don't we just fold up the empty space? Uh, easier said than done. And a couple of other key metrics that we realized that most good architectural uh, design puts all the plumbing, all the wet wall, all along one wall. And if you look at your bathroom, for example, you might have a big bathroom, but all the wet stuff is typically along one wall. And we said, huh, you know, we could create a huge bathroom, for example, but all the wet stuff's all along one wall. And how much space do we need for that? And we came up with about six feet. So we said, hmm, if we made a big box and we folded it down, but we didn't fold it down all the way, and we left a six-foot corridor, doesn't wind up being a corridor, and we did all the dollar-dense stuff in that corridor, and then we unpacked it. Does that work? All right, so let's lay stuff out. Uh, super top-level, uh, you know, 30,000-foot view, and boy, did it ever work out. Uh, so some of the metrics, uh, some of our metrics are that, now bear in mind that uh, most of the modular homes that ship have, you know, eight, eight and a half foot ceilings uh, and they ship 14 foot wide. So our product um, unpacks the 20 foot on the short side, 20 foot on the short side, very tall nine and a half foot ceilings. And the biggest box that we'll be making uh, as a building modules really is 40 foot. So then we asked ourselves, yeah. So we, asked, we said to ourselves, well, if you're 20 foot wide with a 40 foot clear span and a nine and a half foot ceiling and you can cut windows and doors wherever you want, without headers, really large ones, because our technology is so strong. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. Uh, what can't you build with that? What can't you build with that? And the answer is, well, you can build most things with that. And we don't have to be everything to everybody, right? But we can build most things with that. And the best way for your listeners to understand the, the ethos for the boxable building tech is if you think of uh, the Lego bricks you played with as a kid. You know, the little mm -hmm. square one and then the rectangular one 
and then the one in between that nobody uses. Uh, and, that's, <laughs> and those are our three sizes of building shell. And we said, okay, this is a pretty good principle um, to, 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 to build a, the foundation of a company on. And if you stick with those first principles, it's, it's interesting what happens. Here, uh, we call it a problem pie. So you slice up the pie. And, and, and if you do a good job fixing one slice, oftentimes it has a knock-on effect to another slice. So I can very quickly uh, just describe those. So I just described how we unpack something uh, so that we can ship it. What are the knock-on effects of that? And they're very, they're very, very significant. First thing is um, that we ship, uh, we unpack to about three times our size when we arrive. So whatever the shipping costs were, and we've already eliminated the flag cars front and rear and the state line stopovers that these ultra-wide guys that are shipping these illegal products uh, without, you know, special permit. Uh, we got rid of all of that. You know, we just jump on the highway and roll down at whatever legal speed we can. Eight and a half foot wide is the magic number. Thirteen and a half foot off the tarmac. But when we arrive, we unpack to three times the size. So we ship one truck instead of three trucks. I mean, it's just staggering levels of efficiency. And uh, because we made our own trailer system, uh, we made it with uh, a ducktail on the back so that we can backhaul um, we can backhaul commodities from containers to automobiles, further subsidizing the cost of shipping. So these are huge knock-on effects. And then the other really massive one on the other side of that slice is our production line. So behind me, we've got this vanishing point, 400,000, uh, excuse me, we're, we're going to be for 300,000 square foot, so the vanishing point. Uh, factory behind me um, is that uh, we are automotive style production. We're automotive style production. Automobiles are the most complex things that we make on a production line. Uh, the costs are shockingly low. These people know what they're doing. Um, so we have an automotive style production line. If we go back to that dollar dense core that I was talking about, well, it's six foot wide. And it's according to those three sizes of building shell I gave you earlier, they're only six foot wide and they're 20, 30, and 40 foot long. What does that sound like? It sounds like an automobile or a truck. And so we were able to onboard significant talent from an automobile, you know, to make yep. an automotive production line. And we didn't consider automotive style production lines at the very outset. We didn't, we didn't consider backhauling or tripling our volume once we arrived on site. But sticking with our first principles uh, and that first sort of aha moment of uh, dividing the space into one-third, two-thirds and unpacking it yields these other things. And then those other slices have knock-on effects for other slices and so on and so forth. And it gets very complicated. <laughs> so when, when did you feel like... Uh... Well, did you ever have the vision of it being a, a multi-billion dollar company? Did you guys, from day one, built for this? Uh, no. And no, absolutely not. And anybody tells you that they, they would start a company with a vision of being a multi-billion dollar company, eh, you know, if you think of the usual suspects, I think, you know, uh, Zuckerberg, I think, was probably trying to get laid. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, come on, that's what he yeah. was doing. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, jobs and things like that. With the possible exception of, of, of Musk, Elon Musk, uh, but then he's smarter than the rest of us. So he's sort of anomalous. But everybody else would start... Uh, no, we thought, you know, let's let's try and, uh, you know, how big could we get? Uh, we never anticipated the trajectory that we're, the trajectory that we're on today. And what happened was, uh, uh, we said, okay, uh, let's um, let's let's have a go at making these. So we we, we moved from uh, from the east coast to the west coast for for tax and logistical 
reasons, transport corridor and things like that. We set up in uh, a 10,000 square foot R&D lab with a view and said, you know, maybe we'll make a couple of hundred, see how it goes. The ADU market, the accessory dwelling unit, uh, accessory dwelling unit, so especially the unit market uh, out on the West Coast, you know, sort of granny apartments and things. So let's, 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 make, let's, let's make something, see how it goes. So we said about that, we only had a team of about 20 people. I put three or four million dollars in. Said, you know, let's just see how it goes, see if it, it takes root. Um, so we developed some product and, uh, and att- attended a show. And yeah, people just loved it. People went crazy. And the next thing you know, we've got an order from the Department of Defense for 156 units uh, out of nowhere. I mean, as a raw startup. And, you know, you need luck as well, right? So you need to be prepared. And then you get the extra thing that tips you over the edge, which is luck. And, um, yeah, so we started with that. Uh, So that gave us the impetus uh, from a risk risk tolerance point of view to open the first factory, which was 170,000 square feet. And we had, you know... um, uh, Colonel Wendy and uh, several other colonels, they come down every three or four months. And I, I remember standing with them in a completely empty factory. As you put, as your audience can see, we're very, very transparent people. Standing back there, and I'm saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do the other. And I'm looking at them and they're nodding their heads. And then eventually I'm like, you know, this is a startup, fellas, right? And they're like, yep. And I go, all right, well, forewarned. So, uh, yeah, we set this thing up and uh, and, and got it rolling. And then the, the second show, um, just more orders pouring in. And we have a staggering, I think it's about 140,000 um, orders. Uh, I call them really expressions of interest. Uh, the most uh, the significant portion with deposits. Uh, so then you just say, okay, uh, you know, we have to upscale our, our expectations. And, uh, you know, we went from 10,000 to 170,000, 300,000 square feet. Now we're planning boxable worlds, <laughs> uh, you know, delusions of grandeur, but we're planning a boxable world just uh, either in Texas or here in, in North Las Vegas. And uh, that will be, you know, we're planning that now. I don't know. We're going to start with 2 million. Uh, we're going to frame it out to be up to 6 million square feet. The largest factory in the world anywhere is four and a half million square feet, I believe, and that's Boeing. So, um, you know, it's it's been a bit of a ride. So we're we're completely seriously planning the largest factory in the world, and uh, it's you know it's interesting. Some other metrics for you. Uh, this 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 uh, this factory here can make probably five or six thousand homes a year, and that sounds like a really great number. Um, the Horton is the largest home builder in America. Uh, they just, uh, they've invested in us, by the way, which were very nice, fantastic guys, really very helpful to us. And uh, they just crossed over 100,000 homes a year. Our major factory too, which will be this boxable world, will make more than that, will make more than that. And their story wow. company started in the 60s. Here we are, a startup, you know, a couple of years in, in terms of being operational. And maybe by year five, we'll be the largest home builder in the world. Uh, so yeah, nobody plans for that. And uh, even that would only really be a regional a regional factory. Um, so when we have plans for very fast expansion beyond that. But to answer your question more succinctly, no, nobody plans for the craziness uh, if you're fortunate enough to just be in the, you know, do everything right, get a bit of luck and be in the right place 
time-wise as well in terms of what the markets are doing, financial markets, but also sort of the mentality of people around the country, around the world. It's something that's really, really needed. So, uh, you know, we, we set out to do some good. We're actually being rewarded for it, which is kind of nice too. So. <laughs> now you are obviously hitting new tiers and milestones, what feels like every week, every month, every quarter, I'm sure. How do you continue to retool your mindset or keep your disciplines, your habits? What does your kind of, you know, daily mental and physical routine look like to keep you, you know, as a leader of the company and growing the vision and keeping the culture and the team dialed in the way it needs to be in order to hit those, you know, strides? What are you doing on a daily basis for yourself? Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, as long as you're willing to keep your mind mind open, it's actually, as I said, you know, nothing stays good, nothing stays bad, right? So right now, it's really, really good, which makes things uh, easier. So I don't have to deal with too many uh, structural problems that could destroy us. I have to deal with uh, constructive problems that can help us grow. So mindset-wise, of course, at the factory and the office and everything, you know, it's just good feelings all around. Um, so for us right now, uh, it's, it's all about uh, scale and finding the right people mm. to help scale. And for me personally, retooling is the right word. So I'm an intellectual property guy. Fortunately, I have you know, a very talented business partner. We have a tremendous amount of overlap in skill sets, but he has a lot of unique skill sets as well. And uh, for me, the retooling, so I've been in hundreds of factories over my career, but I've never operated a factory. Uh, personally, I've never operated a really, really large factory that's getting really, really big. Um, so I found, and sort of maybe I'm a bit also uh, sort of natively a bit of a control freak, uh, as the most designers are, especially industrial designers, I would say. And so I've really had to retrain myself to say, Paolo, you know, you can't do this. Give, give me a break. You can't do all this. And you don't know enough. So, um, so I, I really, really changed a lot of my habits and said, Paolo, you must delegate. You have to delegate, but you have to hold people very accountable. And oftentimes you're talking to people that work for you that know more than you, much, much more than you within their individual uh, you know, skill sets. So that has to be uh, respected. So we sort of come up with a bit of a philosophy on the staff here, which works for us and may not work for every company. There aren't too many rules. Um, you are allowed to make mistakes if possible, because if you're not allowed to, just don't kill us, you know, but if you're allowed to make mistakes, uh, because that means you're just pushing the boundaries. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you make 10 decisions, and, you know, minimally six of them are right, you're ahead, please continue. Um, so you are allowed to make mistakes. Um, and then uh, you must lead at every level of the organization. Everybody must lead. It's not just a catchphrase. Um, uh, you know, we obviously, uh, uh, Eliana and I, uh, run the business, uh, provide the vision, uh, catch the mistakes, but everybody has to lead. And the only thing folks are not allowed to do here, absolutely not allowed, it's a cardinal sin, is to forget stuff. Because forgetting things is not a question of time, it's a question of laziness. I'm not saying complete your task, I'm saying don't forget your task. Don't forget your task because then you're going you're to become just a, a heat sink for other people. You're going to drag in people around you when your boss is telling you, hey, did you get to this? If you hear it more than once, if you hear it more than twice, there should be alarm bells going off in your head. Don't forget uh, anything. So, you know, that's been, that's been, you know, really interesting for me. That's been the main thing for me. You know, we've, we've, um, we've mushroomed here 
to a couple of hundred people, just knocking on about 200 people. Um, I paid a lot of attention to the old chart. Uh, I paid a lot of attention to giving people individual latitude with the ability to catch mistakes as and when they happen. And we're going to thousands of people very, very rapidly. Um, and I'm also conscious of the fact that the business is, I, I believe, you know, sort of hand on heart, that Galen and I are the best people to grow this company anywhere on earth right now. But I also know that there is a point where we will not be the best people to grow mm. the company. So right now we're in this tremendously entrepreneurial growth phase. And you have to be a bit of a pirate sometimes. Yeah. And the big corporate guy might not be such a bit pirate because he doesn't want to get fired or whatever in his yep. regular or her regular corporate job. Um, I think it'll probably take a, a, a decade for Boxable to innovate 80% of its fundamentals, maybe 85% mm-hmm. of its fundamentals. And at some point, the company is destined to be a staggeringly massive logistics company if we don't screw it up. It's going to be a staggeringly massive, one of the biggest companies in the world, logistics company. I have no interest in that. I'll, say, I'll take a seat on the board. I'll say sayonara. I know my business partner will completely have lost interest at that point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I'm having to think about things in the last five years that I've never thought I'd have to think about. I never thought I'd have to think about. But there you are. So uh, you can have a long career and you can still, you can still grow. You can still grow uh, personally. And I would say that uh, it's thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling that, uh, you get, that I personally get an opportunity to think about new things. Not as a hobby, but because it's required of me to do that, to mm. do my job. Yeah. In the you know, journey that you've been on, I know a lot of people struggle with, you know, and there's so many different perspectives on balance, right? And you talked about there are a lot of sacrifices that have to be made in order to unlock, you know, success at the level that you've unlocked it at and many others aspire to unlock it at. And sometimes, you know, people sacrifice the stuff that is most important to them, that is the why or the reason behind what they say they're doing it for in the first place. What does that journey look like for you and the ebbs and flows of balance and, you know, balancing obsession with your work and everything that you're passionate about, but also family and health? And, you know, what are your kind of, uh, I guess, wins and losses in that category over the time frame that you've been doing it? I think it goes back to the conversation maybe uh, you know half an hour ago, 20 minutes ago. Uh, if you want to be successful, work-life balance is bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> Scrap that from your head. Scrap that from your head. It's like, oh, this is my personal life and this is my work life. No, not for me anyway. It's my life. It's my life. Uh, and I'm not going to just compartmentalize myself away. It's not going to say I'm not going to take a long weekend or take a, a sort of a vacation, I suppose. But it's life. There's, there's no difference between the two. And I also point out, perhaps to your readers, that or anybody in a work environment, they're actually spending more time with their work colleagues than they do with their family. Just think about that. Just think about that for a moment. Yep. So spending more time with their, with, with, their, with their co-workers than their family. So those relationships are important. I call them professional friends. Uh, they're not real. They're not friend friends. They're professional friends. The, 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 the beginning of the relationship is based on business, and they are 
professional friends. And over the course of my career, I realized I prefer my professional friends than my friend friends because it's, you're, you're based on a more solid on a more solid footing, a less emotional footing. Yeah. And I suspect, I suspect more of a, a respectful footing as well. So, yeah, work-life balance equals bullshit, number one. And number two, you can absolutely pack it in. Anybody that tells you they're working 24-7 is totally lying to you. Of course, they're finding time to chill, watch TV, um, or go to the gym, or spend time with their family. Of course, you can squeeze that in. It's not, it's not either end or. But you better be focused on 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 you know quote you know vision say that word yeah uh, and and, ex- and, a pa- and a plan to execute it and if you're the sort of person that's going to get uh, a hair across their ass can I say that and yeah so, you can say whatever you want brother <laughs> <laughs> because you get a text at three p.m. on a Sunday out you go yep yep <laughs> I call it the all inclusive lifestyle you, you know <laughs> I, I I've tried to figure out a way. Um, and it ebbs and flows, but you know, the, the Monday through Friday to enjoy the weekend is like you said, just seems like bullshit to me. So for me, it was, how do, <laughs> how do I create a lifestyle of work, yeah. of play, of health, of, you yep. know, passion of my wife, my kids, you know, all of the things that I say are important to me. How do I weave all of those together yeah. every single day of the year and make it some fluid, obviously with peaks and valleys, but some fluid routine to where, um, like you said, you know, everything can get checked in one day without it having to be a this or a that. So I, I want if I can just say, just please. stop beating everybody up, you know, conversely, if that lifestyle is not for you, it's not for you. And it's totally fine. Doesn't make you a bad person. Agreed. It probably makes you a better dad. Right. So, um, but really, if you want to go for it, if you're really an entrepreneur, just, you know, you should, you should go in with your eyes wide open. Yep. Agreed. I, I, I love that because some people try and fit themselves into yeah. that when really they don't want that. And that's okay. Yeah, um, that being said, I want to wrap up on this for the sake of time, you know, as, as maybe we can finish what the vision of, of Boxable looks like going forward. I think there's something really important about you and your journey and you've said it multiple times and I know people will experience it whether they decide to opt into it or not. And that is partnership. Um, you know, you hear of a lot of people who have amassed insane success and impact by having a partnership of one plus one, not equaling two, but a hundred. And then there are also people that, you know, get into partnership and it ends up being one of the worst things that could have happened to them. What has been your partnership philosophy and why do you think you and your partner have, you know, had this amazing, successful, synergistic journey together? Yeah, that's such a great question. Uh, So, you know, I've had partners in the past and it it all comes down to quite a literal individual basis. Uh, For for my partner and I, my business partner and I, you know, one part of the secret source is uh, we're father and son. Uh, We're actually father and son. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very, very interesting. And so... That's even more beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's really, it really is. I mean, it's it's such a privilege. But for me, you know, obviously I've had successes I've had. And my son is uh, independently uh, successful as a number of really uh, fantastic businesses under his belt. And oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, you see that, uh, you know, father and son, he's like, oh, well, what about the son? He must be an idiot, right? Um, you know, because there's always that question mark. And it's certainly not the case uh, with us. In fact, um, you know, he, 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 he's, he's, he really leads um, more, than, more than me. And uh, in many, many areas, he schools me as well. So I, I can only talk personally uh, about our relationship, you know. So 
I'm, I'm just, uh, I mean, look, frankly, I'm just hugely admiring of him. And I think that uh, one of the secrets to our success, uh, you know, you see familiarity often breeds contempt. We've all heard that expression. And I think with the father and son, if there are any father and son teams out there, it's not incumbent upon the son to start res- to res- being respectful. It's incumbent upon the father uh, to give due respect to the son if you mm. actually want him to be true equal, which we are. We are co-founders with a huge overlap and with our own skill sets. So the, 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 just the, the relationship has to be based on the father being respectful first to the son and the son reciprocates. And uh, we have, um, we, you know, we're talking constantly. Um, we have disagreements uh, frequently, but they're in, 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 in the sense that Things are working out. It's never with any, you know, hostility or anything like that. Just a lot of mutual uh, respect. Uh, so it, it just gets it just gets hashed out. Uh, and so for the the underlying thing must be at the end of the day mutual respect. And that goes, I think, if you're not blood, you know. Um, I mean, I I see, I you know, I see. I, I just take a quick detour. In regard to respect, which can really help make your life a lot easier, uh, you see couples that talk talk to each other without really being very respectful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, we've all seen couples, and maybe we, we we've done that ourselves. We're all human. And then you think the guy who's being disrespectful to his wife will be more respectful to a toll booth collector that he's going to talk to for three seconds, give him the dollar. Than he is somebody's chosen to spend the rest of his life with. And I think we can all check ourselves and say, oftentimes we're the least respectful to the people that are closest to us in our lives. And it's sad. And I think people don't mean it. And I think it's just familiarity. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, just maybe a little bit broader than business. um, if you can be respectful to everybody, and if you're going to be du- doubly respectful to anybody, it should be the people closest in your life to you, uh, whether those are coworkers, uh, your spouse, husband, significant other, and certainly, you know, your business partner, because you're going to go through a lot of a lot of bumps uh, together. <laughs> Such a great reminder. It. Uh... I, I, my mom is the GM of my, my hotel company. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to work together for seven oh, years, seven years now. And I kind of pulled her out of corporate America and, and convinced her to, to come and work with me. And so many people ask that same question of like, how do you and your mom work together? You yeah. know, does, is that weird? You Boston? I'm like, well, I'm not her boss. We, we are equals. And there is a, there's a, a level of respect in terms of how we communicate, how we treat each other, how we challenge one another, how you go through conflict resolution. And you just touched on so many points. And I love that you took it outside of work too, because I think so many people, you know, need that reminder, right? Of like, we do, we treat other people that are strangers better than we treat our wives or better than we treat our kids or or employees, people that you spend the most time with and that you say you value and cherish the most. So a great reminder there, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure, brother. I mean, just hearing and seeing the journey that uh, you've been on is, is not only inspiring from a business perspective, but how you humbly continue to challenge yourself and, and bring value to others. And I'm just extremely excited, one, because I'm a real estate investor and, you know, 
know, have played in that space my entire career and journey um, to see what Boxable is going to do. And I'm curious, what is this moonshot vision? I know what, you know, you guys are already working on. I'm curious of what this, you know, if that were to happen before I die type <laughs> of vision were to come to life, what does that look like, you know, from, uh, from your set of lenses? Sure. So, um, yeah, no, 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 absolutely. So we call it boxable time here. Everything happens very, very quickly from, you know, we, we don't like people sitting around in meetings. We don't like big meetings. I actually want to stop us installing an alarm bell uh, if, if a meeting goes on for more than 20 minutes. But then <laughs> it, might be a bit, might be a bit authoritarian. So probably won't do that. Um, so what we're looking to do is apply um, innovation business principles to uh, creating the construction marketplace into a post-industrial marketplace uh, uh, which is built in a factory to make most things most of the time at the very highest quality as quickly as possible at the absolute lowest price and so that's a mouthful when i say the lowest price i really mean it so we've got some calculations here for let's say the 40-foot building shell before it's configured uh, and with high volume production, when we can vertically integrate a lot of a lot of products, have tremendous leverage with our suppliers, uh, take advantage of the shipping logistics that we're creating ourselves through efficiency. Uh, I think it's going to be. I think I think the marketplace is going to be very very shocked at the cost of our product, and they're going to say, "I can't make it for what they're building it for. Not even close. How the hell are they doing this?" So you that. know, we're doing this. Um, uh, so the, the marketplace is so huge that there is we can't see the ceiling from here. We can't see the ceiling for the size of the marketplace. There is no national brand. Um, there is no Apple. Of there is no Tesla in the housing market. They're all regional companies. Even fine and storied companies I mentioned earlier, like the Horton, Champion Hunt. You know, you, you, you talk to most people that are, that are, they've never heard of that. Uh, and much more likely to have heard of a, a two-year-old upstart called Boxable they would have of Lenar Holmes, uh, for example. So yeah, our vision is to scale this sky um, as quickly, as rapidly, as cost-effectively as possible uh, when we get to maturity and we're selling retail products uh, in vast quantities. We plan to build a home every 60 seconds, and kid you not. Um, and then the, the uh, just sort of again, super top level. You know, we have our product, product of the building shells that are configured to make most things. But the other product is a factory. We consider the factory the product that makes the product. And we're developing this factory. We don't deal with legacy issues. We get the wrong piece of equipment, we throw it out immediately. Uh, we have we, 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 we have the ability to do that. Um, uh, to get to the finish line of the most efficient, low-cost, high-speed manufacturing, humanly possible. And then uh, uh, the product that is the factory, uh, right down to the branding, you see the banners. Uh, we give literally Disney-like tours for our fans that come around. Um, we're package that, pa packaging that to franchise around the world because the need is so big. So um, we'll, uh, we'll operate, uh, no doubt, fully. The, the facilities uh, in North America, and then as we branch out overseas, those will be with with uh, with with franchise partners, and oftentimes those those will be countries, and uh, just really like McDonald's, you know, and uh, those 
factories for overseas will be dialed in, if I can continue the analogy with McDonald's, to the local, to the local taste. You know, maybe the bedroom needs to be a, a different size, the window, sure. you know, how people are living, um, et cetera, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's uh, very interesting. We've, we've mapped this out for staggering scale as a reaction to the reaction <laughs> that we've received. And, uh, you know, we'll, 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 see. we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, I'm smiling because uh, I, I can just see it myself in how big of an impact this is going to make, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. And uh, it's cool to uh, get it, you know, that vision directly from uh, a, a co-founder, a founder. So okay. I just want to thank you for your time, brother, and and the humility that you show and and just how you continue to uh, innovate and, and serve the, the people in the industry around you. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on today's show. Thank you, Matthew. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you share it with somebody else who maybe needs to hear this today or that could gain some value from something that was talked about or discussed in today's interview. You just never know one piece of information, a conversation, a tool, a resource can completely transform and change the trajectory of someone's life or their business. So if you get any kind of value or you want to support the show, all we ask is that you help us organically get this in front of more people. Also, for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey and unlock more financial freedom, get more time back and just level up your life, your business, your finances, be sure to head over to therichlifeacademy.com to check out all the amazing products and resources that we offer to our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, courses from our guests, all kinds of free content, downloads, checklists, upcoming event info and how you can connect with us live in person, all kinds of great valuable tools you can get that over at therichlifeacademy.com. Last but not least, I always want to know, who do you guys want to hear me interview next? Let me know. Shoot me a text at 844-447-1555. With that being said, until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March to a million and beyond. Cheers, my friend.